This is Jonathan Van Maren. Welcome to the Bridgehead. I'd like to welcome Peter Hitchens, author and commentator, Ava Schlost, Holocaust survivor and Anne Frank's stepsister, former porn star Shelley Lubin, Stephen Woodworth, Canadian member of parliament, Dr. Ephraim Zuroff, the top Nazi hunter for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Gavin McGuinness, writer and actor, Reverend Gerald Wilberforce, the great-great-grandson of the great abolitionist William Wilberforce, Leon Lace the youngest surviving Jew from Schindler's List, Phyllis Schlafly, constitutional lawyer and the most successful activist in recent American history, Mark Stein, best-selling author and commentator. I'm your host Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you news and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Bridgehead. For the next hour, I'm going to be talking to Ted Byfield. Now, for those of you who don't recognize his name, Ted Byfield has actually had an impact on your life, even if you don't realize it. For example, Ted Byfield, who was a veteran journalist from Alberta, helped found the Reform Party in Alberta, which eventually turned into the Federal Conservative Party of Canada, which right now has been the government for nearly a decade. In fact, he invented the phrase, the West wants in, that symbolized the desire of British Columbia and Alberta to become part of the National Coalition. He is a journalist who ran magazines like the Alberta Report, the BC Report, then later on the Western Standard. He's written a number of books, uh, books that I even read growing up as a young conservative, like uh, The Book of Ted, Epistles of an Unrepentant Redneck. And the journalists that staff places like The Globe and Mail, Maclean's Magazine and elsewhere, virtually every major Canadian publication has on its payroll journalists who are trained by Ted Byfield and his beloved wife, Ginger, who passed away last year. But Ted Byfield was more than a political activist or a journalist. Ted Byfield was always, first and foremost, a Christian. And the last great project that he has been working on now for decades is the Christian History Project, a series of beautifully illustrated and meticulously researched books on the history of Christianity, which, as he often says, is the greatest story ever told. But in today's culture, is often the greatest story never told. Nobody knows what actually has happened for the past 2,000 years, and thus we can't even understand our own culture. And he has begun an organization called SEARCH to combat this ignorance and to reestablish the position of Christianity in society as the religion, the faith that gave us much of our civilization and our society in the first place. And so for the next hour, we're going to be going over different aspects of Christian history, different aspects of our current culture, and how those relate to you and how those relate to me. So you've spent uh, decades on a project recording Christian history and producing a series of books uh, because you say that nobody knows their history anymore and that more specifically nobody knows uh, their Christian history. And I've referred to this before uh, myself in writing as cultural Alzheimer's, that we've completely forgotten uh, where we came from. And of course, that lends itself to how we live our lives and the sort of decisions we make in everything from policy to education. So why, in your own words, did you write this series? It's a fascinating series of events. And it uh, doesn't feel like history when you start reading it. It's as though you yourself are part of the events. You become captivated by right. it. And one of the reasons for that is that 
our whole culture arises out of the Christian faith. Uh, what we call Western civilization is a product of the Christian religion. Uh, is the most compassionate, the most just, uh, the most technological pro technologically proficient civilization the world has ever known. In fact, by way of testimony to this, the people who are outside that civilization are continually pressing to become part of it. Right. And what we are doing within it, because we don't understand what it is, principally, is ditching it with no notion whatever how we will replace it. That seems to be what is now going on. And we thought, well, at least we can do is tell people what it is mm -hmm. and how it came about, because it is a fascinating story. Right. Quite apart from being historical, it's also mm -hmm. very, very interesting. So that's why we did it. Well, most people don't even know what they are ditching, as you say. And there's the famous saying that those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And we're in a generation now that doesn't even know that they're repeating history. There's a book recently from a Mark Bauerlein, who's a professor. He also writes for the journal First Things uh, that he, call, he calls my generation the dumbest generation and essentially says that we don't know anything that's happened. But how did we get to this place uh, in the first place? Because obviously, to forget your entire history, you have to have some sort of a glaring gap in your education because a, a culture, a heritage, it surrounds us. So the fact that so many people could forget these things is obviously uh, part of a larger and more orchestrated campaign to ensure that we did forget these things. And I think of a lot of the late night show hosts who go out in the streets and ask questions like, who were our allies in World War II? And then hilariously, a lot of people get that wrong or even think that we were on the same side as Italy and Germany. But there's a sort of unfunny aspect to this all as well. How did we get to the point where we forgot our history? Um, I don't believe much in conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. but there was a conspiracy. Right. And it goes back to the American educational system at the turn of the 20th century. When a school of educational thought came into being, which was determined to eliminate from the intelligence and, and cultural uh, uh, constituency of the whole generation, all idea of the absolute truth. Everything right. must be relevant. Everything must be a matter of mere speculation. And the purpose of the educational system is to enable all the people to adjust to communal living. Right. That's what it was about. Now, history worked against this. History is a good story, for one thing. Mm -hmm. It throws up heroes. Mm -hmm. it's, it throws up villains. And these are all absolute figures. So the educators said, we must get rid of history. We must suppress it. We'll use fragments of it, and we will call it, instead of calling it history, we will call it social studies. Right. And social studies is not history. Social studies is a sociological idea mm -hmm. which borrows from history now and then fragments that reinforce some social theory. Uh, the consequence of this is what you notice. We now have a society that is absolutely amnesiac when it comes to their own background. They mm -hmm. don't know. 
And, and uh, this is like losing your memory, you know, right. on a personal level. You can say, well, my memory's flawed, but it's what I've got, and that's how I remember it. History is flawed to some degree. You can't, it, it can never be absolute in, in that sense, but, mm -hmm. but in the main, we know what happened. And uh, so that to lose your history is like losing your memory. We we're becoming amnesiacs, and that was not an accident. It was exactly what they intended to do. Well, I had social studies in high school, of course, because I'm of that generation. And I, I didn't learn a lot of, of history. And then I went to university, and I, I had a degree in history. And I didn't learn a lot of history there either. I think the first article I wrote for the campus newspaper was on the revisionist history department. And one of the things that I discovered, and I'm still discovering, is how much of history I'm unaware of. And, and your series of books do, do a very good job of pointing that out. And you, in your journalistic career, have really tried to point these things out as well. Uh, the, the story that's being told, it, it's not just that people are forgetting history, but they're rewriting history. And they're telling a very different story from the one that you're telling. So for example, the story of the sexual revolution, which is taught across the board now in universities as uh, Alfred Kinsey's revelation that people were engaging in all sorts of, of sexual behavior uh, and that he just had to come along and break the conspiracy of silence. You point out in your books that there are academics like Dr. Judith Reisman who have very, very specifically debunked everything that Dr. Alfred Kinsey had to say. But in the universities, this is still taught as fact. So we've got two things going on here. We have the fact that people don't know anything about history, but then the history that we learn in university isn't giving us the full story. You know the story of Kinsey. It's just an amusing thing. Mm -hmm. he, uh, went, he asked his students, he was at the University of Chicago, I think, right. I'm not sure, uh, and he asked his students, would they mind answering questions about their sex lives? Be and he asked the other faculty members, would they ask their students? Well, practically none, of, all of the students said, yes, they would mind and mm -hmm. they won't do it. So when, he saw, when one of the professors, I can't remember exactly who it was, saw these books come out and he said, well, none of, none of our students answer. Where did he get this information? It turned out it was based upon interviews with prison inmates, homosexuals, and, and uh, who was the other group? Prostitutes. This is the basis of his assessment of American sex life. Well, it was nonsense and it was just embraced by an entire society as gospel truth. That's what happened. I ironically speaking as well, and Dr. Judith Reisman says that she resents Alfred Kinsey because he smeared the greatest generation, in her words. The academics who tried to highlight the truth, so the expose on Alfred Kinsey was done by Dr. Judith Reisman. Another major anthropologist whose work has been debunked was Margaret Mead, who in 1928 wrote The Coming of Age in Samoa. You also discuss that in your books. And Dr. Derek Freeman, an academic, did an intensive research project on her life and discovered that her entire book was also a hoax. So we know these things now. This research has been proven. But there's a, a very poignant moment in your book where you say that as Dr. Derek Freeman explains his findings, and a, a audience full of academics realizes that their entire careers have just been flushed down the toilet by his findings, that there was, there was just this, this dead and palpable silence. So the, the forces that be now in the university system and in the culture at large are dependent on this narrative that they've constructed uh, for their careers, for the policies that they promote, uh, for how essentially they've lived their lives. How do you come up against 
this, this sort of university industrial complex when it comes to the reproduction of history? Well, it took about 100 years to build it up. Right. And it's going to take another 100 years to get rid of it, I think. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Mm -hmm. It means that uh, independent people, if you want to call us that, like yourselves, like these books which mm -hmm. we produced, are feeding forward a very different story. And as people come to absorb that story, it has much more credibility, mm -hmm. if you stop to think about it, than the one than the falsehoods that are being right. uh, thrown around. And I think uh, it, uh, eventually it'll emerge, but it, it, it took us 2,000 years to build this civilization. Mm -hmm. And we could lose it within 100 years unless right. we begin correcting some of this nonsense that goes on all around us, particularly mm -hmm. in academe. Right. Demolition is notoriously easier than construction. That is correct. But and a, a great deal of blood, by the way, was spilled building that mm -hmm. civilization. And as people begin to read this and they, they think, you know, this or that sexual mores and mm -hmm. so on came about because of the, the work of a great many people. And here is this court decision or that yeah. court doing something else. Uh, are going to throw it all out. Uh, people begin to wonder, is this a very good idea? And what are you going to mm -hmm. replace it with? They don't have anything to replace it with. And uh, I think as that becomes known, you will see a major transition going on in your generation, mm -hmm. not mine, of course. Mine's well, done. Well, you're almost 90 years old, and you spent decades working on this project, and you had to go through great financial hardship to get it off the ground several times. What is the impact that you see? Because you've stated very explicitly many times, these are not coffee table books. They might sit on your coffee table, but you're supposed to read them, and you're supposed to read them from cover to cover. What's been the response then? Because you're, you're trying to give your own small or large contribution to a very, very big problem. Have you had an impact, created a few hairline cracks? We have had individuals, which is the key individuals mm -hmm. often, saying, you know, coming to us and saying, I didn't know. I had a fellow came in the office the other day. It was a typical of what we're running into. He said, I didn't know who we were. He said, I was a Christian. I went to church. But I had no notion what this is. Mm -hmm. I thought that Christianity was something went on at the church at the corner. It goes right back to our back. It's our roots. Mm -hmm. It's everything. It's our entire culture. Mm -hmm. uh, our ideas of law, our ideas right. of morality, they're all emerging from this same thing. And he said, when you realize that, you begin to look at the world that we're seeing in a very different yeah. eyes. And we see that happening only with individuals, but massive change always happens that way. This guy or that guy or the next woman mm -hmm. or somebody realizes this is wrong and gradually you see a counter movement develop and I think that's what we're seeing the beginning of. Well it's interesting that you say that because when I talk to Christians they're very frustrated because it's not just the misinformation that's out there but the secular left treats Christians and Christianity with condescension and contempt. Uh, they, they just assume that the arguments we make often aren't even worth hearing out and these books are dangerous to their condescension and contempt because they show the other side of it. And I've discovered that when you present Christians with, with better arguments, with a better story, they're almost relieved that it exists and that it's just been out there waiting for them to discover all this time. A lot of people see history as an outdated and generally useless pursuit, in general a waste of time. Some of those people are educators, but not everybody does. Here, for instance, 
is Preston Manning, the man who founded the conservative movement in Western Canada, which would one day become national and win three consecutive general elections. But Manning himself is not a politician. He's an economist, and he heads up the highly influential Manning Center in Calgary. Now, here's what he has to say about the value of history. There are some people who feel that uh, history is of no importance, uh, but there is a smaller number of people who believe it is of enormous importance and an enormous advantage to know what went before if you have to deal with the present and the future. There's such a thing as a historical mindset, and I would contend that people who have that historical mindset, a grasp of history, will do better in the present and the future than those who do not. There used to be an event in the Olympics called the standing broad jump, where you tried to jump ahead from a standing position, and the furthest anyone got was about seven feet. There is still an event in the Olympics called the long jump, or the running broad jump, where you get a run before you jump, and the record in that event is some 27 or 28 feet. In other words, the simple lesson is that you can get further ahead if you get a run at it than if you start from standing still. And what a knowledge of history is, is that getting a run at what went before so that you can get further ahead in the present. So it's interesting, before you said that when we got rid of our history, we had nothing to replace it with. And actually, we had nothing positive to replace it with. What we've replaced it with is ideology. And I was, I was traveling in China recently, and it struck me uh, really vividly because our tour guide was taking us around and showing us all these different things like the Summer Palace. We went to see Mao Zedong, who they've still got embalmed and, and on display in a glass case because everybody needs to worship a god. So they all leave flowers in, in front of, of this dead dictator. And I kind of forgot for a moment that they were still under communist rule because I'm used to traveling in the former Soviet bloc. So Serbia, Poland, East Germany, Czech Republic. And they're all quite open about their history and the types of things that have happened. So I was asking her a lot of questions like, uh, what do you think of Mao Zedong? And she said, well, he was a great man. I said, well, this is impossible. He, he's responsible for the deaths of up to 70 million people. They had to invent a new word for how many people that he killed. And she started to get very uncomfortable. And then I realized, well, of course, there are soldiers everywhere. They're still under communist rule here. Um, but I, I still pushed a little bit farther. I said, surely somebody who killed that many people can't possibly be a great leader. And she just looked at me and she said, denying Mao is like denying communist party. And then she, and then she marched off. And with that, history was placed firmly in the backseat to ideology. And that's what we see in our universities and you know, on most of our cable news shows and in our newspapers. And, and how, how do we deal with that? Because most people don't even know what we've lost with our history. So can you give us a few examples, a few anecdotes, a few stories of the way uh, our cultural amnesia has impacted the culture that we live in from day to day? Because a lot of people are going to say, who cares? History is just one thing after another. Who cares if we don't know what our history is? But obviously that has a real impact. I think the thing you can certainly see is the misunderstandings of certain events in history. Mm -hmm. The, if you ask a person, well, what's so bad about the Christians? They always mention two things. Right. One is the Crusades, right. sometimes a third. The second uh, would be the uh, Spanish Inquisition. And the third is the treatment of Galileo. This uh, inevitably, yep. this comes up. Mm -hmm. Well, then, if you push them and say, well, exactly, 
what do you what do you know about the Crusades? Mm -hmm. And they seem to regard them as an unprovoked attack by militant Christians upon peace-loving mm -hmm. Muslims, which is not at all mm -hmm. what happened. And uh, what happened was the Crusades were in a attempt to regain by conquest what had been lost to the conquest mm -hmm. of the Muslims. And, and this is not just not known. Right. And, and uh, on the question of the Inquisition, well, it was certainly hardly a, an admirable thing, but what they were trying to do in Spain, Spain uh, the Muslims invaded Spain in mm -hmm. the 8th century. And in the 16th century, eight hundred years later, the Spaniards, Christians, had finally pushed them back out of Spain right. again. So the Spanish Inquisition was the attempt of the Spanish government. And it was a bad attempt, it was a bad mm -hmm. thing to do. But it was aimed not at Jews, as most people think, that they got involved in nothing. It was aimed at Muslims. They were having to get rid of them because every 200 years there'd be another Muslim attack from right. across the Mediterranean. And mm -hmm. eventually one of them's going to retake the country. So that what they were doing in effect, was was trying to st to stop this Muslim problem, mm -hmm. and uh, we've got the same thing going on right now in France. The right. people don't know what to do about mm -hmm. this. These are violent people, and they're going to take the country over, or so they say. They are. Mm -hmm. that's how they identify themselves. So that uh, we don't say this was the Spanish effort to deal with a problem we now have today. Right. We say this was an unprovoked idea, and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, similarly with Galileo, uh, you find out that what Galileo was contending implicitly in his trial, he, he, was, <laughs> he was treated, he was certainly sentenced, but he had to serve a sentence in a great palatial palace mm -hmm. where he was given. What he was contending, uh, what Galileo, was that nothing, nothing, no law should have the ability to check or uh, inhibit the work of science. Mm -hmm. That was the basis of his defense. Mm -hmm. You have a similar situation in the Galileo affair. Mm -hmm. uh, he is regarded in, the, in common history, if you want to call it that, as simply the victim of a Christian rejection and fear of science. Mm -hmm. yeah. Almost all the, the scientific background of Galileo was provided by Christian clergymen. They go back 200 right. years. Copernicus himself was a Christian, he was mm -hmm. an officer of the church. Yeah. Uh, and all the former research that had been done in the West was done by Christians leading up to Galileo. Mm -hmm. But Galileo made an assertion implicitly in uh, what he w when he ran into trouble with the church and it was this, he was contending that no law should ever have the ability to inhibit the work of science. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is the implication of that, uh, if you stop to think about it? Does this mean that if the scientists can invent uh, artificial human mm -hmm. beings who do anything that the, their owners tell them to do should, be un, uh, should not be subject mm -hmm. to the law? What is right. he saying here? as if we can, uh, someone can find out some way of destroying an entire civilization, yeah. we shouldn't inhibit that? Mm -hmm. because well, we, don't, we don't even have to ask ourselves that question. Quite recently it came out that Planned Parenthood is sending the bodies of aborted babies to have their corpses pillaged for body parts in the use of science. And that's their defense, that they're helping science. Yes, so yes. what you say is, is precisely yeah. applicable to the modern age. Now, I think that 
one, some, when somebody reads this stuff, mm -hmm. and it's, it's true, it's, it's telling the story, they begin to question within themselves a lot of other assumptions being made on their behalf mm -hmm. by academe, by people in right. the humanities particularly. And uh, as that skepticism begins to, uh, on the infallibility of science, mm -hmm. begins to seep into the culture, we find that we'll find these things reversing. Right. Uh, the very few scientists themselves are actually scientistic. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, scientism means the same thing that Galileo was saying, nothing must inhibit science. Mm -hmm. And that, be, that sets up a, a, a genus, if you like, of humanity who are scientists mm -hmm. who run everything. And, and, and uh, a lot of people are questioning that. Already they do, and uh, particularly in your generation, mm -hmm. not mine. Well, that's because my generation has really seen the fallout from things like the sexual revolution. And, and this is where it plays directly into our knowledge of history, because G.K. Chesterton once said that you never take a fence down until you know why people built it. If you don't know your history, you don't remember why people built the fence. So you take it down and you see what happens, uh, which is why we've gone from things like, you know, two mainstream sexual transmitted diseases to 25 new categories. This cannot be called progress by any thinking person. And at the same time, this is the world we now live in, a world in which uh, people are far less happy, uh, in which sexually transmitted diseases are rampant, in which just in North America now, uh, we've killed off about 56 million preborn human beings developing in the womb. And, and what I really want to get into uh, with you just a moment is the fact that uh, the left is quite bizarre in how they defend things, insofar as that they've got this ideology that not only trumps history, but actually trumps science and everything else. So, for example, if you, if you talk about babies in the womb, for example, you've, you've written much about abortion, and you talk to somebody about how it's a human being growing in the womb, and they say, well, are we really sure it's a human being? Well, in what other context is this question asked, right? If your friend tells you she's expecting, nobody asks her what she's expecting. They all know it's a human being. Everyone has seen an ultrasound. Everyone's seen a sonogram. Uh, but when it comes to the philosophical, the ideological question of abortion, uh, we suddenly forget everything we know about science, and we default to an ideological position. And our lack of knowledge of history has, has helped us along with this. And, and you put in the, your last book, The High Tide and the Turn, uh, you examined Dr. Bernard Nathanson, for example, who was at the forefront of legalizing abortion, and how they legalized it through lies. That they said, for example, that 10% uh, of women were dying in back alley abortions, and they were giving these enormously inflated numbers. And he admits that he made these numbers up. I, I, I talk to people all the time about abortion, because obviously I work on the pro-life movement, and these numbers are still being used as fact. The science in connection with mm -hmm. abortion has come down solidly mm -hmm. on the pro-life side. Well, certainly, yeah. It, we've, at the instant of conception, what is it, 32 characteristics mm -hmm. like this are determined at that point, color of eyes, certain mm -hmm. things about the mind, hearing, senses, and so on, even physical size, yeah. all determined then. So the thing that was going to become you or me came into existence at the, at the instant mm -hmm. of conception. So there's no argument about when the life began. No, there's not. Scientifically. But science is quietly set aside when we're, doing, mm -hmm. when we're dealing with human rights, with the right of the poor woman that doesn't want to have this baby. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got the best birth control systems the world has ever known in a period uh, when, when we're suddenly finding out that there can be uh, 
we, no penalty must uh, uh, attach to uh, unfortunate, really unfortunate results of illicit sex, mm -hmm. which is what it comes down to. Yeah, really. And so that we, we uh, are not thinking these things through. In the meantime, we have population problems, and uh, in, in many countries, Japan will hardly exist in a hundred years. Right. Because they don't have enough babies. No, the sale of adult diapers has now outstripped the sale of infant diapers in Japan. Yeah, exactly. Well, in Russia, Putin's government, I, I wouldn't want to be an unwritten uh, qualified defender of Putin's mm -hmm. government, but some things we ought to watch. He will not allow abortion clinics to advertise. Right. He's got government people preaching have more children. Yeah. Why? Because there won't be a Russia No. if, if you don't. That's why. The abortion there was 7 out of 10. Yeah. Pregnancies a, 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 and he says, the West uh, thinks it's ahead of us mm -hmm. in secularizing its government. Right. We went down that road, he mm -hmm. says, in 1917. We know where it leads, and we're not going to go down it again. Right. That was his answer to the refusal to have gay pride parades mm -hmm. and so on and during the Olympics. Yeah. And... and uh, uh, I, I don't think people, generally speaking, are looking at some of these things that we're doing. That, that is, uh, sexual homosexuality was a, was a, a crime mm -hmm. 50 years ago. It's now become a crime to criticize it. Yeah. This is in a total 180 degree turn. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're even beginning to think out what the implications are. What's very interesting is you bring up Russia, and a lot of people are talking about Russia and the Russian system and Putin. And what you just said is very, very interesting, the idea that they went down that road before, and they don't want to go down that road again. Uh, how do you think that re reflects on, on, on the history of the modern West? Because a lot of people talk about you know, Western values. But I've noticed that when Christians talk about Western values, and when left-wing secularists talk about Christian values, they're talking about two very different things. Which is why, for example, when those cartoons got shot at the Charlie Hebdo office in Paris, uh, people were saying things like "Je suis Charlie," which I didn't feel comfortable saying, because on one hand you had uh, you know blasphemous nihilists, and on the other hand you had bloodthirsty barbarians. I reserve the right not to pick either team, uh, and and I think that people should stand up and say things like that as opposed to just reflexively getting on board with with the team that seems the most popular at the moment, but. This is sort of where we're trapped. What example do you think we can take from Russia at the moment? Well, Russia's position on this homosexual question, which seems to be the thing that explodes right. everybody, is this. It was defined by their minister of culture. She said, first of all, I have gay people on my staff, mm -hmm. my personal advising staff. They right. are very good workers mm -hmm. and they are very intelligent people. Mm -hmm. So don't misunderstand yeah. what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she said, the practice itself is unbiblical, which matters to us. Hmm. She says the practice is unnatural. This is not it doesn't create children, which is the natural. Right. And the practice is exceedingly unhealthy. So why are we celebrating it? You know, what's the big occasion for the parade? Right. I have never seen anybody attempt to answer that particular argument. 
No, and it's interesting because here in Canada as well, what, what the sexual revolution has become extraordinarily totalitarian. And, and it usually is, right? We've got Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics. Those are the guillotines, the cleanup crews that ensure coitus yeah. does remain casual and that your reproductive organs can be used for recreational purposes. But what I find interesting is that this whole thing came through in, in the, with the 1969 omnibus bill where Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, hopefully the first and last, but we'll see, uh, stated openly that he was going to smash down a lot of taboos or take down a lot of fences. But the saying that he used to promote this was the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. And now we have a situation where if a politician doesn't attend the Pride Parade, people get furious because they do want the state in the bedroom buying rubbers and pills and such <laughs> things to ensure... they the state. <laughs> right, well, I remember on the radio in Toronto when Ro Mayor Rob Ford was being, being interviewed, and of course he's a train wreck, but I found the conversation illustrative because he wouldn't go to the Gay Pride Parade for a couple of years because he said he was on vacation with his family. And one of the radio interviewers said, for the love of God, will you just go to the parade? And I thought, if anybody stopped to define either love or God in that sentence, the discussion might end a lot differently than the interviewer suspected. I think what's happening uh, is that we have thrown overboard, we've, somebody mentioned, we've cut off the branch we're sitting on. What yeah. we're doing is repudiating our own, uh, the source of our mm. own morality. We have nothing to replace it with. And that what we're, this policy, uh, we, mm. which we seem to have adopted, can only lead to some sort of chaos. Right. And uh, unless, there's, there's a factor we have to always remember. There is, if there is a God, mm -hmm. if God is out there and intervenes in our history, which Christians believe mm -hmm. he does, the real question is not what is the Supreme Court gonna do, it's gonna be what will God do, mm -hmm. and that could be quite uncomfortable. A very uncomfortable question, certainly. And it's interesting though, because there's there so many different contradictions in this. So. Most of these ideas came in under sort of the guise of cultural Marxism about communal living, as you pointed out uh, earlier. At the same time, the argument they're making to legalize all these different things and mainstream all of these new sexual practices is that everyone can do what they want. It's the orthodoxy of my own personal feelings. So they're making a sort of a simultaneous argument that your actions don't impact anyone else and therefore you can do whatever you want. And at the same time, they're pitching this sort of cultural Marxist communal living. Exactly, yeah. The one is contradicting the other. Mm -hmm. Well, this idea of rational consistency, right. which you're advancing, mm -hmm. is repudiated within the culture itself. Reason is ultimately the victim of the change. Right. The minute you say, well, look, if you're right here, you've got to be wrong here. Mm -hmm. they, they, don't, they don't reason this. That's what you're exercising is reason. And the whole cultural change that we're seeing is a repudiation of reason. They don't, they think this is just your own feeling, you right. see. You don't think, you feel. And uh, that change in the culture has been trained to us. We, right. we've, been, we've been working to create exactly that kind of situation mm -hmm. uh, in which people do not say, I believe this to be true and mean it to be true. They must not say that. They say, I feel this way or I right. feel the other way. We call it the new F word in my business. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and that is what now has be, become embedded in the culture. Mm -hmm. So that on the one hand, we're saying every person should be allowed to make up his own values. And right. then we're bringing in a whole regime of values mm -hmm. concerning 
sexual criticisms and that sort of thing. One to one in total contradiction of the other. And people are forgetting that everyone can be wrong, but not everyone can be right. <laughs> I think so. That's true. Jason Kenney, a key figure in the federal cabinet, viewed by many as the next prime minister. History is the single most important subject to study if you want to be involved in politics. Aristotle, one of the most important political theorists, said that uh, politics is the art of free people deliberating on the question of how we ought to order our lives together. If you want to enter that deliberation, you, enter, you need to understand how it's developed over the centuries. You need to understand the basic concepts and how they have actually been applied in different historical circumstances. For example, here in Canada, if you get elected to a legislature or to parliament, you're becoming part of an institution that has changed organically over centuries. You need to understand how that institution, the Westminster parliamentary system, came to be. You need to understand the, the struggle between the authority of the Crown and the Commons. G.K. Chesterton once told us that that tradition is the democracy of the dead. We need to understand the wisdom of those who have gone before us if we actually want to contribute in a meaningful way to contemporary political issues. I can tell you, I've been in Parliament for almost 20 years, and there is not a single issue I have encountered which is completely new. Every issue we encounter, from healthcare to economic management, from foreign policy to security issues, all of these are echoes. All of these issues that we address have precedent. All of them are based on things that have happened before. So uh, I would say that if anyone's interested in uh, engaging in the political sphere, the single most important subject to, to study uh, is that of history. So you've said that Christianity is an amazing story that no one knows. And as a journalist, you're used to telling stories. And one of the reasons I found the book so enjoyable was because they were written by people who are used to telling stories. Now, what are a, a few of those stories that would really not only enlighten the audience, but uh, appeal to them? And you brought up uh, Margaret Mead previously, and, and her story is in, in the last book in this series. Tell us a bit about how that goes. Well, it's one of the great, most hilarious events in human history, really, <laughs> because Margaret, working on behalf of a prominent mm -hmm. psychologist, or sociologist, rather, uh, was sent to uh, Samoa mm -hmm. in order to find a society that had not been tainted by the Christian faith. Right. And when she got there, she... Uh, uh, interviewed various people and came back and wrote the book that became the virtual Bible of first-year sociology courses all mm -hmm. over the world. It was called Coming of Age in Samoa. 1928. About 25 years later, a guy named Freeman, whom you've mentioned, mm -hmm. who was also a sociologist and also spoke the language of the Samoans, right went back and he realized when he knew of them that the Samoa that she had portrayed, which was a, a, a civilized, a, a society of total uh, sexual freedom, right. anybody, anybody people were routinely uh, uh, had sex from about the age of 16 or 15 mm -hmm. on, and this was the society that approved. That's how she painted mm -hmm. it. And of course, this is why the secular uh, sociological society mm -hmm. uh, uh, discipline and adopted it. Mm -hmm. They loved this. But he said the Samoans he knew were, as a matter of fact, the very opposite to this. Right. They had extremely strict and uh, rigid sexual propriety. 
So how did this happen? And he goes back and he, to the same people that had lived, that she lived with, and she finds two, old, two or three old ladies there mm -hmm. who were young girls at the time that Margaret had arrived. Mm -hmm. And they, she, he began to ask these young girls, did they remember talking to her? And they both began, these two or three girl, women now, older women, they both all began to giggle. And he said, well, what are you laughing at? And they said, well, we told her the most awful stories. <laughs> and it's all lies, she said. Because Samoans like to tell people what they want to hear. And this right. was obviously what she wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. So we just made it all up. And he, he said, you mean that they don't have any of these things and didn't then? Oh, no, she said, we were this, uh, the virginity of a bride was sacred to us to the, in the mm -hmm. marriage. Well, he, he said, then, then you lied to Margaret Mead on this? Yeah. Oh, well, it wasn't really lying. We were just kind of teasing her. Mm -hmm. So what happened? Their sense of humor informed <laughs> the sexual values of an entire right. civilization and things outside that civilization for the next century, all because of two or three kids having a joke on Margaret Mead. And the, 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 the president of, I think he was, of the Sociological Society mm -hmm. of the World, I've had a mean right. admitted that this was a hoax. And he said, we should have been far more careful than we were. <laughs> and, in assessing the report of Margaret Mead. Right. <laughs> but she, these, these kids had misinformed an entire generation of humanity. That's what it came down to. Because they were looking for what they wanted to now hear. Now that's a good story. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so and that's interesting. So like history can be revelatory as well as humorous. But one of the things you mentioned earlier is that one of the reasons history is dangerous to social studies and, and to the more secular left is that it, it holds up heroes. Now you've written the and first, first 2,000 years. Who in your mind would be one of the most admirable heroes, your personal favorite? Well, obviously you have to say St. Paul. Right. And, and, and uh, in that era. But also I think Athanasius in the, sixth, in the uh, what, fourth century. Interesting. He, uh, you see what happened was the Christians were under dire persecution. Uh, and suddenly, uh, a Christian, uh, an emperor, mm -hmm. came to the fore after considerable fighting, who sided with the Christians. He said, look, why are we uh, uh, persecuting these people? They're the best soldiers we've got. Right. They're the best subjects we've got. What are we trying to prove here? And they just flipped around, and suddenly Christianity became a a sort of avenue and path to power. You right. See. The whole thing turned upside down. And the other thing that happened was where the Christian leaders of the previous century had been people of scars, one eye, all the victims mm -hmm. of per serious persecution. Suddenly, Christianity beca became the avenue to power and right. prestige. And the first thing they attacked was the dogma developed at the Council of Nicaea in, uh, immediately before this great change to Christianity mm -hmm. occurred. Uh, they didn't like the idea of Christ being the Son of God. Right. And they followed the entire establishment, began to adopt the Arian heresy as Christian uh, uh, traditionalism. Mm -hmm. And one guy, 
one bishop, archbishop he was of Alexandria, opposed this movement against all kinds of powerful opposition, and that was Athanasius. The creed that we have been reciting in the Christian churches ever since, the mm -hmm. Nicene Creed, which was not just Catholic, for instance, right. when, when uh, <coughs> Uh, Calvin was accused of not accepting the, right. uh, he was terribly upset because mm -hmm. he, he accepted the Nicene Christianity. That creed was defended successfully by Athanasius and it was, the, the, the saying was Athanasius contra mundum, mm -hmm. against the world because all the bishops had gone over in the East right. had gone over to Arianism. One guy and he preserved the faith. And there's great stories in him doing it. There's one, one let me tell one. Mm -hmm. He's fleeing, they're trying to get him, and they had a terrible time arresting him. They could never find him because the, the common people were, support, were hiding him. He's going up the Mount Nile, chased by a, a boatload of soldiers who are out to get him and arrest him and mm -hmm. kill him, of course. And uh, they, he can't keep ahead of them. So he turns his boat around with the men with him. And they now come downstream and they come opposite the pursuers coming upstream and the pursuers started, they see anybody over there was giving a description of Athen, Athanasius and Athanasians. <laughs> he didn't want to lie to them. He said, you're very near to him now. Oh good, they said. <laughs> His story is full of these things mm -hmm. and he's a wonderful preacher and of course he defended the faith. He is another hero, I think. That, uh, uh, you have to mm -hmm. be admiring of a guy like that because he really was against the world at one point. What about villains? I think that we, we have considerable number of villains in our own era. I think, I think mm. bishops who have, and clergy who have abandoned Christianity mm -hmm. and re remain on the payroll and undermine it, these are villains. I think if they have lost their faith, they should abandon the clergy, not try and change it. Um, but I don't want to name any specifics. We all know who they are because there's so many of them. Right. But they're all villains. Mm -hmm. And uh, historically, uh, I, there, there, the chain of emperors that suppressed the, uh, let's see, that suppressed the faith in the early part of the, latter part of the first mm -hmm. millennium, there are some pretty awful guys in there. And there were some, certainly some popes in the 16th century and in the 9th who left a lot to be desired. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that uh, the attitude of uh, Catholics, I'm not a Catholic, the attitude of the Catholics towards the papacy is very interesting because they realize that uh, the pope can, can be a very bad actor. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they, uh, they ascribe to him uh, infallibility, but uh, the, the bad acting popes never had very much to say on doctrine. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a, so I think you'd have to pick up some of as, as, as pretty serious uh, villains. And finally, I think the conquistador element in Latin America that did dreadful things to the Indians and uh, in really wiped mm -hmm. them out in the Caribbean were right. very definitely villains. And it's interesting that their chief opponents, thank goodness, mm -hmm. were the clergy, who right. were utterly opposed to what they were doing. So there's mm -hmm. some villains. Well, I remember having, I remember interestingly enough having that debate with 
my class in university. I went to Simon Fraser University and there was a class on Canadian history. And everyone was talking about these arrogant clergy members who were, who were foisting their faith on, on, on you know, the, the poor beleaguered aboriginals who had no need for such things because they were already living in harmony with nature. And I said, here's what's interesting. If they truly believed that hell existed, and if they truly believed that heaven existed, what would actually be more racist? To not tell these people that heaven and hell existed and which one they should be aspiring to go to? Good. And the whole class went dead quiet. They'd never really considered the idea yeah. that it would be far more racist for a Christian who sincerely believes in heaven and sincerely believes in hell not to put that forward to Very an Aboriginal population. You're absolutely right. And I've never heard that point made before. To stay, to stay silent when you knew somebody was headed to hell was not doing them any favor. Well, certainly not. Well, for the last segment, let's talk about the way forward. We've talked about heroes, we've talked about villains, we've talked about how history has become social studies and how we've forgotten even that. And you wrote these books because you have a purpose. You're almost 90 years old, but you're still an activist journalist like you always were. You're just telling uh, the greatest story that was ever told, as they say. What do you think the way forward is? I think the way forward is for Christians always the same. They go back to the Bible, they go back to the or origins of the faith and uh, to Christ and the example he set. But we have to be careful to that the picture we form of him is accurate mm -hmm. because certain things about him uh, we think is wonderful and everybody does and they're always quoted but there are other things about him, things that he said that are very unpopular mm -hmm. then and now. Right. And we have to listen to them because our idea of heaven, for instance, almost as an inevitability, that idea you can derive from St. Paul. You can't derive it from the Gospels. Mm -hmm. he, he was very, very harsh and warned people that hell was a reality. And more, there's, there's also this frightening verse in it where he, 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 he says that the path is narrow and st straight mm -hmm. and few there are that find it. I mean, that's frightening. Mm -hmm. It's not our picture of the family sitting down beside the Red River of Death and all having a picnic together right. on the other side. That's not what, what, what's there. I think we've tended to minimize that and we will go back to it. Mm -hmm. Now, people who have <coughs> lived through tough times, really tough times, um, they, uh, they don't have any trouble with that because they've seen the harshness of of reality mm -hmm. itself. We've lived in probably, by we, I mean people living in North America and mm -hmm. Western Europe since 1945, have probably lived in the most comfortable, uh, secure, well-fed, well-housed generation ever. ever. And we have tended to assume that that is the picture of heaven. And it isn't the picture that our Lord painted. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it was certainly perfect in, in, uh, insofar as heaven went, but the path to get there was not that easy. Right. And uh, I think that as we begin to take him more seriously again, you're going to find a lot more hellfire sermons, if you want to call them that, right. being preached. The fate of super affluent uh, societies uh, is consistently bad because they tend to fall apart 
and this is not a pleasant right. experience, but they do. The collapse of the Roman civilization mm -hmm. being the classic. I mean, people were just destroyed massively. Mm -hmm. I think we have to begin to think mm -hmm. in those terms a bit because we're, our optimism is is flawed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting, and because you've said this before, and one of the things that's interesting about your books is the way you deal with the American question, uh, the American experiment. While most American conservatives would say America was founded as a Christian nation, and, and, and we're losing the fact that we were a Christian nation, whereas you say in your books that the America that was founded by the American Revolution in 1776 could not be called Christian. No. But that America became a Christian nation, and this is an example for us to look towards. Yes, now what happened, and that's very interesting, mm -hmm. because Newman, the great Catholic academic, said, looking at England and abandoning the Christian faith mm -hmm. very consistently, said we should be aware of the fact that no country or people have ever recovered the faith once they lost it. Right. But while he was living, that very thing was going on in the 19th century in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. At the turn of the, of the 19th century, 1800, mm -hmm. uh, about 12, I'm going from memory, but I, but I think it was 8% of Americans belonged to a church. 8%. Yeah, that means one family in 12, the other 11 didn't. It was mm -hmm. not a Christian country. By the turn of the 20th century, the figure was something in the order of 40 or 50 percent mm -hmm. were members of churches. What happened? Two things. First of all, massive emigration from Latin America, which was Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't immigration. They, they simply took over the right. parts of Mexico that were Catholic, mm -hmm. and this increased the Catholic. The border crossed them. Yeah, right. And, uh, but the other thing was a civil war. We don't have anything in Canadian history to parallel that. Hmm. The hundreds of thousands of people that died. And there was an enormous, Mark Knoll, the great American hmm. Christian historian in the United States, at least I think he's great, paints us very clearly. There were massive uh, conversions to Christianity hmm. going on at the same time in both the North and the South. Right. And uh, yeah, and, this, and it was those things, but they were, born of awful pain. There are no atheists in foxholes. Well, that's right, and the enemy spoke the same language that they did and belonged to what had been the mm -hmm. same country. And, and uh, this is an agony, the Civil right. War was, and th out of that agony came this revival. Mm -hmm. We may go through the same thing. We could have, uh, we live in an era in, in which man has acquired the ability to stamp himself out with the nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and heaven knows what all. We could go through some dreadful calamity, mm -hmm. and out of that would emerge a new civilized Christian civilization. Mm -hmm. So that uh, uh, we 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 shouldn't think of the United States as having originally been Christian and then uh, becoming uh, less Christian. As mm -hmm. that's not what happened at all. It was a, the colonies were Christian, the original colonies, mm -hmm. no question. There was a major decline in Christianity between the founding of those colonies in the 17th century mm -hmm. and the, the American Revolution at the end of the 18th. Right. It, the Christianity almost disappeared. And then all of a sudden comes surging back again in the 19th century. So the fact that we're losing it now doesn't mean that we've lost it forever, but it could mean that we're going to suffer an enormous calamity before that revival occurs.
And we may be in the beginning stages of that now when you look at the fact that they're trying to uproot all vestiges of Christian belief across yeah. oh, the yeah. world. That, yeah, that, there's no question it's going on. In fact, the people doing it say that's what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. it's, not a, it's not a conspiracy. Right. A conspiracy is something that's done secretly. This right. is done openly mm -hmm. and has wide support, mainly because people don't realize the implications of it. We've got to tell them and show them in no uncertain terms what could happen here. Well, you're almost 90 years old, so you've seen a lot of this unfold. Have you seen the moral arc? I've, I've, what I've watched is the Christians lose one battle after another mm -hmm. in, the, in the cultural sphere. And they, we lost it because we didn't have enough people. Right. The, the battleground was the media. It was not politics. It wasn't even academe. It was the media. That's where the decisions mm -hmm. were made. The politicians would wind up saying, I can't go this way because the people will oppose me so widely. They didn't know how much mm -hmm. the people or what the people thought was being represented by the media, and it may not have been what the people thought, uh, but the media was so powerful. Uh, and I think if we're going to turn it around, we must get back into the mm -hmm. media. With we, we need young people in particular people now in their late uh, teens and early 20s who mm -hmm. believe in Christ. Well, the place to look at, as well as the pulpit or possibly medicine or mm -hmm. that sort of thing, is look at the media. Mm -hmm. Look at the English language. Gain control of the English language. Know your history, the history of your faith. And use your knowledge of the, of the faith and your formidability with words to win the cultural war. That's the way it's got to happen. So in short, what would your generation have to say to mine? My generation would have to, we are, we, we, there's a generation between us, you mm -hmm. see, that we have a common enemy, the boomers. <laughs> They're in the middle. It's a P.G. O'Rourke's title of his book was The Baby Boom and How It Wasn't Our Fault and I Promise We'll Never Do It Again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, sure, I mean, it's the, uh, we have a great thing in common. We both dislike the same. <laughs> Unfortunately, as my daughter-in-law point, constantly points out, you raised us. <laughs> and she's right. We made the mistake. Uh, before we start, I would like to make the point. This is simply the youngest group I have ever seen. I don't think there's a people, is there anybody on this crew that's over 30? He's 27. I'm 21. How old are you? 19. See what I mean? 20. This is unheard of. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it. what you guys are doing is running a, you're, I know you, you're a revolution. You keep saying what's going to be done about it. Well, you're doing what's going to be done about it. <laughs>